one of the biggest things in touring that contributes to climate change is people traveling to and from the concert. If, you know, we played Red Rocks in Denver, which was a dream venue for us. And there are about 10,000 people in that audience. Think of the number of cars that are going to and from the venue just to see that one show. It's tremendous. So if you can incentivize carpooling programs and electric vehicles and all of these other things, that's how we're going to start to make a difference in the touring industry. Hello, friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I talk with people who want to live a meaningful life, people who give a damn. Thank you for showing up. I truly hope this conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. A quick warning right now. Since the beginning of this pandemic, I have been officing in a shed in my backyard. That's where I'm recording right now. It's not a real studio, and it's most definitely not soundproof. And we are in the middle of a rainstorm, and there's been a tornado warning for most of the day, and it's 11 p.m. So if you hear any noise in the background, now you know why. And I'm sorry, but I cannot help it, and I'm not going to re-record this damn thing. I have this fancy schmancy mic that usually does great at cutting out all the other shit, but I wanted to let you know in case you hear something weird, you know, like a tornado or something. Before I introduce my guest today, can you do me a favor? Would you be willing to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts? Like, right now, if you pause this podcast, head to Apple Podcasts, and leave your rating and review, you could be back here in 45 seconds flat. It would mean the world to me. And for those of you that did it, that are just coming back, thank you so much. And for those of you that didn't and haven't left a rating and review in the past, I still love you, but maybe just a little bit less than those that have left us a review. Friends, my guest today is amazing. His name is Adam Met. He is one-third of the six-time platinum band AJR, a band that he uh, started with his brothers Ryan and Jack. He is the founder and executive director of Sustainable Partners, Inc., an organization that collaborates with people, businesses, charities, and policymakers to foster education, access, and action around sustainability. He is also getting his PhD in international human rights law and He's the host of the Planet Reimagined podcast. So I've been listening to AJR on and off for about a year or two before I saw a post on Adam's Instagram that led me to internet stalk the hell out of him. And it quickly became clear that Adam gives lots of dams. He gives so many dams. So I hit him up. He agreed to come on the show. And I'm so glad that we got to record this conversation. So much to learn from this New York City boy turned rock star turned sustainability leader. Before we get into our chat, I want to make sure that you know that AJR has a new album coming out on March 26 called OK Orchestra. If you're not already following uh, this band and their music, I hope that changes today. My kids and I love them, and we dance our faces off to their song Bang on a regular basis in our home. It's so, so good. Before we begin this conversation, a quick reminder that you can, anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love, love, love hearing from each and every one of you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the super interesting and super smart Adam Met. Let's go. 
an absolute joy to have Adam Met on the podcast today. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am. It is a pleasure. I, uh, for a few different reasons, you know, as I've gotten to know more about you and your brothers and your band and your music, I found out about a different side of you, right? This, this side of you that gives so many dams, not that you didn't on the band side. And we'll get into all that very soon. But as I, as I found out more about you, I was like, hell, like this guy has got to be on the show. There's so much to unpack, so much to discover. And um, it's been an exciting, let's start with this. It's been an exciting week for y'all, right? So on <laughs> Sunday, um, and we'll get into the band more here in a little bit, but you and your brothers... Uh, got to perform as part of the five-day inaugural celebrations. Tell me about that. How was that? It was an out-of-body experience, even though we weren't there in person. It was completely surreal. And it felt like it came full circle. Because honestly, about four years, a little over four years ago, Joe Biden invited us to the White House to perform for one of his organizations that he and Barack Obama started called It's On Us, which is an amazing organization that fights uh, sexual assault on college campuses. And we wrote a song called It's On Us for that organization. We donated the proceeds to them. So he invited us to the White House and we met him and he was just such an unbelievable and empathetic person and hearing him speak and seeing him speak then we knew that one day he was going to do something absolutely incredible and beyond being a vice president. And so it was so nice that, I mean, at least I think he remembered us and wanted us enough to come back and perform. But, you know, to be part of something so historic, not only Joe Biden, but also Kamala Harris, also the Democrats taking back the Senate and having the House and now having, you know, this time where we can rebuild in a way that's kinder and focused on science and facts and rebuilding democracy and rebuilding the United States' relationship with other countries. We were just so honored to be included among that small list of artists that could participate. Yeah, it was a small list. And, you know, many of the artists were, you know, super great. You know, I love James Taylor and obviously yeah. Connor Britton is great, Ben Harper, and then you all and a few others. So that's really Amazing. I didn't know the backstory there with It's On Us yeah. and, you know, that there had been a previous invitation to the White House and that you guys donated your proceeds. Again, more more ways that you all are giving a damn. And it really is a it's an interesting time. Obviously, every uh, presidential election is important, whether yeah. you you know, whether it's uh, the person that you want in or the person you don't want. And it's still an important transition. Right. Definitely. But but these last four years, my God, like. If there's one, I was I, I was doing a podcast a while back with uh, a friend of mine, Jeremy Cowart, and he he's a he's a well known photographer, and he we we did a whole ep episode on uh, raising families, raising kids, uh, making business decisions, like living during a wild presidency like the one we just went through, right? How do you talk to your kids? How do you do this? How do you do that? And and what we we mentioned in there that one of the best things about the last four years is that people are interested in politics now, right? Before Donald Trump, before this seemingly impossible candidate became the president of the United States, so many people couldn't tell you anything about how our politics run. They couldn't name press secretaries. They didn't know what the role, like how did, how did the Senate and the House and Congress, how do they play together? Who's this majority? Who's the minority speaker? Like nobody knew any of that shit. And then it, it became important. It became really important to know how we function as a country. And so that's one of the, 
again, that makes this inauguration all the more powerful that now, I mean, we saw it with the record turnout, 81 million people voting for Joe Biden, right? That in, in and of itself was historic. And now we have so many more people, young people, excited about politics, probably going to run. You know, so many more young people are going to run, hopefully weeding out some of the people that have been around for a while, right? Um, so yes, a historic inauguration to be part of. Um, so glad you all got to do that. It's like we had a national civics lesson. You know, they don't really teach that so much in school. Anyway, everyone says, you know, oh, I wish they taught me how to do my taxes when I was in high school. But even taxes, like I feel like everyone learns so much more about taxes with the Trump tax cuts and, you know, the, the the new president wanting to raise taxes and people actually taking the time to understand what that means. I think in some ways we needed this as a country, not that we needed Trump as a president, but we needed this transition as a country to be able to get everyone back on track and re-understand what truth is and what's necessary for us to participate in, in the life of being in a community. I mean, it's Rousseau's social contract. We pulled away from this idea of being accountable to each other as people, and now we're falling back into it intentionally or unintentionally. And I think it's a really great thing. Yeah. It's, it's really key what you just said about like, we didn't, obviously no one would have wished for, I shouldn't say no one, lots of people did. I, you and I would not have wished for a Trump presidency, but Suffering is such an integral part of the human human experience. And suffering has to take place for new and better things to be birthed. They, they're those things that would never be birthed in good times, never be birthed when there's no friction, right? So we have to, this woke us all up. And now, hopefully, tens of millions of people are going to live differently, are going to think differently. They're gonna, they're gonna march when it's time to march. They're gonna protest when it's time to protest. They're gonna give when it's time to give. And Hopefully we can spend the next four years, you know, truly one of the phrases we use here at Let's Give a Damn is telling people that we're aiming for fewer walls, longer bridges, bigger tables. Like mm. I obviously, I have the way that I feel, the things that I believe in. And yes, they by and large lean left and very left, mm -hmm. but I need the other side. We need to, to reach across, whether it's a neighbor the neighbor aisle or the political aisle, we, we're going to need each other. Like I can't, you know, leftists and liberals can't achieve all the things they want to achieve alone. We need cooperation. Again, not from, we're not talking about white supremacists and xenophobes and, you know, outright racists. We don't need Trump to get the job done, but there are so many people on the other side that we need to say, hey, we might not agree on X, Y, and Z, but we can work together uh, in education, in, you know, taxes and uh, all, all the different, you know, issues that we're dealing with. So, much like there is uh, no light without darkness, there is no left without the right. Because just as much you can understand what you don't want from life by looking at the people around you, as you can understand what you do want by looking at the role models and people around you. So you do need somebody to have a valuable and fact-filled discussion with in order to push yourself forward. Because yes, you cannot look around and say, that looks great, that looks great, that looks great. But it's just as valuable to say, I don't want that. And I don't want that. And now I realize it. Yeah. Super powerful. So alongside this historic sort of ending of a terrible presidency in the beginning of hopefully a good one, a great one, um, we're also in the middle of a pandemic, which we'll, we'll touch on. Yeah, our, uh, yeah exactly. Right. Um, We'll touch on it in a few different ways throughout our conversation, but let's just start with like, 
what has the, you live in New York city, right? Yes. And, uh, that's always been home for the most part, right? Oh, always my entire life. I was born in Manhattan and lived in Queens for a bit and then back to Manhattan and have never lived anywhere else. I love that. I love that. Here's, and there's a few different reasons why I love that. One is New York city is I've traveled the world. I've lived all over the world and New York city is the greatest city in the world. And I've been to the best of the best. Um, and I just can't get over that city. I, when there's not a pandemic, I'm there six, eight times a year, literally as much as I can. I, I make any excuse to go to the city and <laughs> we're trying to, uh, we're trying to move, um, our plan is to move there in the spring. Um, we were supposed to move a couple of years ago. I am a, an extreme risk taker and I've started a bunch of projects that have left, you know, like it spent all the money I have. And then some, like, I just keep spending money hoping that it will return someday. And I think that's happening little by little, but, but it's not been the time to move to one of the most expensive cities in the world. Right. Um, and oddly enough, I think the, you know, again, I wouldn't wish the pandemic on anyone or any place, but I think, um, New York after the pandemic, or even in, in these coming months, right. While it's still happening, but hopefully winding down, I think it'll give an opportunity. You tell me as someone who's lived there all his life, like, I think it'll give some, it's always been looked at as this like untouchable city, even though 8 million people live there, people are like, oh, you can't live there. You can't raise kids there. And I've always not believed that, but it, there has been a, you know, a financial barrier in some ways to people moving there. And now I look and I was, I was just goofing off the other day on street easy and looking at this apartment in East village that, you know, earlier this year, right before the pandemic started, was listed at like 4,800 a month. Mm-hmm. Right now it's at 2150, like less than half, right? You can move to the East village you know, for 2150 right now, which is insane. So how's the pandemic been specifically in your experience in New York city? Yeah. The pandemic has been really interesting. And I feel like much like the rest of the country, it's been constantly evolving, but especially in New York city, you know, at the very beginning, you had to wear certain clothing outside and then wear different clothing. When you got back into the house, you needed to wipe down all of your groceries. You know, you needed to Um, keep 20 feet away from people instead of six feet away from people. The rules constantly change. And in New York, it's very difficult to keep 20 feet away from people. As, as you know, if you are walking down the street, even to get to your supermarket, it's impossible to stay that far away from people. Even in the aisles in your supermarket, it's impossible to stay that far away. Um, So I think the rules constantly changing has made New York a strange place because there are some people still living by the rules that we had in March. And I still see neighbors in my building that, you know, leave their clothes outside of their door and switch into other clothes when they go back inside when we know that's not necessary anymore. Yep. But, you know, people do their own thing here. Um, my experience personally has been trying to update myself on these constantly changing rules and regulations, but also... COVID has has touched our family pretty significantly. My aunt passed away from COVID Mm. and we know a lot of people who have gotten it, some people who have passed away and some people who have made it through, but it is something that has not, it's something that's allowed us to do other things in our life in a way that I had not appreciated before this. Um, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about, you know, the music side of things and the other work that I do. But COVID kind of gave me this moment of internal self-reflection. Meditation is the wrong word, but it's almost like a less of an internal meditation and more of a 
awareness, a self-awareness meditation that's happened because for the first time in a very long time, everybody in this city and everybody in this country is going through the same thing. It creates this, you know, not to sound cheesy, but, you know, brotherhood and sisterhood that we haven't felt before. And most people in New York City are doing what they're supposed to do, abiding by, you know, the mask rules and everything. And of course, they're going to be the people who are not. Sure. But to see the people, I, I live in the West Village now, and the West Village has tons of restaurants. And to see your neighborhood restaurants closing down and to understand what they're going through when traditionally in the time before COVID, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't really, oh, that restaurant closed down. What can you do? The fact that you have a real understanding why things are happening gives you a whole new perspective on all the other people that you're seeing in the city. So that's more of like a philosophical view of of COVID. But I mean, personally, I've learned to cook a little bit more. Um, I've had time to work on these other projects. I would not be finishing my PhD as we speak if not for COVID. So I hate to say it, but there are a few things that I am thankful for and that it has given me time to, to do. Yeah. So the, my experience has been similar. I don't live in New York. I live in Nashville, which is a whole different experience. Uh, we've lived here for three years. We've, it's, it's not, not been home. It doesn't feel like home. We moved here for a specific reason. That reason is coming to a close, but it's been different in that, you know, we've, you know, Nashville is a small blue dot in the middle of all yeah. red. Right. Um, and, and as of a couple of weeks ago, we were, you know, st- we were the COVID capital of the world. Like we had more cases per capita than anywhere on planet earth. Yeah. So that's my existence is like a lot of people. Yes. In, in, in Nashville proper, there are more left-leaning people, more people that believe science, listen to, you know, the authority figures. And we, and consequently we had, you know, lower cases than other places, but still, um, what I've appreciated is during this pandemic is what I have not appreciated is not traveling. Um, you know, much like yourself traveled a lot. Like I was on a plane, you know, several times, several times a month. And when this happened, I thought, man, this is going to be really hard. I love my family. I've got a beautiful wife, three kids, love my family, love being with them. But I just also love traveling and it gives me, it gives me a break from, not from them, but just from life to like go explore. And I've always been an explorer. I grew up in Guatemala, traveled the world on my own. Like I just want to be, see new places, you know, meet new people. So I still get to do that as a family man, which is a blessing that I don't take for granted, but all that came to a halt. I haven't been on a plane since uh, March and that's been hard. But what it has allowed me to do is similar, similarly to, to your experience, you know, obviously, um, well, you're not married, right? No. So this is unlike your experience. I got to spend more time with my you know, wife and kids, but you know, I started a nonprofit during this time. We branched off. Let's give a damn into starting a nonprofit, started another company, really expanded. You know, we shot the pilot for a TV show that will very, very weirdly because of COVID, but we shot the pilot for a TV show that wouldn't have come together had I not, we not had time to like you know, dream it and scheme it and make it, you know, make it come together, started my book, like a lot of things that I just wasn't because I was always going, yeah. I didn't have time to slow down and actually do. Right. And so it's been a weird, I think there are two different kinds of people and I don't blame the people that are unlike you and me that, you know, are just surviving during this time. And I'm sure there's some survival going on here, but I, I, 
I decided not to do that. I decided to not um, just survive and get through this because I had an inkling, you know, they said it would be a few weeks, maybe a couple months, and then we'd be back to normal, blah, blah, blah. Here we are 10, 11 months later. So I had this like feeling that it was not because I know Americans, I know how we respond to people telling us what to do. And I was like, this is going to be around for a while. And so I just hunkered down and was like, let's get to work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I want to mention one thing that mental health is an incredibly important thing yes. to me and my family. And I know a lot of other people and everybody has different ways of 100%. preserving themselves and protecting themselves and preserving their mental health. And some people's route to mental health is let's do as many things as possible. I need to continue to distract myself and, and focus on many things at the same time. And that allows me to be mentally healthy. And just as valid is the opposite of that. Okay, I need to shut down everything I'm doing. I need to be in this kind of meditative state and you know take the time for myself. And that 100% is just as valid. So for the people who are listening, just because, you know, Nick and I decided to take this approach of, okay, let's try and conquer all of these things during COVID because now we have this time. That's not necessarily, you know, the right thing for every single person. So I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you for clarifying that. It's, it's, uh, it's been fascinating to see those in my inner circle, how we've responded differently. Right. And as you pointed out, all of them are valid. For those people yeah. right now that are just getting by and you are watching Netflix for four hours every night and you are, you know, you are trying, just trying to shut off at the end of every day because work was terrible and the kids are hard. That is 100% valid. Me, I would go absolute bonkers if I did that. Me like too. I am, I am the most mentally healthy when I'm creating, when I'm making, when I'm, Oh, I messed up there. How, how could I have done that better? And bouncing stuff off my mentors and my team and stuff. So yeah, all of those experiences are super valid. And, and because we're not out of the woods yet, uh, because, because America, um, we, we've got to continue to hone those experiences and figure out what works best for us. Um, okay. So you mentioned earlier music stuff. Let's dive into music. Then we'll get into your other work. You're one third uh, of a band named AJR that a lot of people will recognize because you guys have, I, again, haven't followed your journey super extensively until so here's my first time that I that I heard of you guys probably a year a year and change ago no maybe a little more a couple of years ago let's let's say that I saw um you all or I guess whenever it was you tell me when it was when you guys performed alongside PS22 the kids choir Staten Island oh yeah um it was a couple of years ago right yeah probably a year, a year and a half almost two years ago something like that so I'm a huge fan of PS22. I love hearing kids sing. Like, like 10 years ago, I was like, I'm gonna start a kids' choir. Like kids singing is like the most angelic thing, right? Yeah. And I used to I used to sing in a kids' choir, blah, blah, blah. So so I've been watching PS22 videos for years. And then you all popped up with you know your song 100 Bad Days, right? Um, and I heard it and I was like, these, these dudes are awesome. And then I did a little more exploring fun out. You all are brothers. And that made it even better uh, <laughs> on a different scale. We have that in common. I'm one of, uh, I have seven brothers and four sisters. So there's 12 kids Wow. and, um, four of us. So the, 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 the first four born, um, the first born, uh, we created a quartet early on. So grew up in a, grew up in a very evangelical household and 
my my parents were missionaries. We moved to Guatemala to be missionaries when I was younger. And my dad is Guatemalan, grew up, was born there, came to the States, we moved back. And we were sort of like a sideshow for for the whole like raising money thing. We could yeah. sing. We were we were decent. Like we could sing, you know, fairly well. And we had this like three, four part harmony thing going on. And so we called ourselves the Lapar Brothers. AJR is a lot better, Adam, Jack, and Ryan, right? Uh, but Lapar Brothers was our thing. So we so I made music with my brothers growing up. So that we have we have that in common. But tell me about yeah, tell me about AJR. Tell me about your band. Cause again, huge. You got invited to the Biden inauguration to perform alongside other legends. So tell me about that experience and even tied into how things changed when the pandemic hit, right? Because obviously yeah, your industry is one of four or five big industries that cannot function during a pandemic. Done. Yep, absolutely. I mean, the uh, the Sparknotes version of it is that we started off street performing in parks in New York City. And that is literally how we got our start. We had a hat out on the street. Jack, my youngest brother, was about eight years old. And he was singing, you know, prepubescently Michael Jackson covers. So very, very high, right? Very high, yeah. very high. Um, yeah, and I think people on the street felt bad for us. So they threw money in our hat. And that's actually the money we used to buy a computer, to buy a ukulele, to buy a microphone, to buy Pro Tools. And we were doing covers then. And then we started to write music. And for the next, I don't know, five, six summers, we went out onto the street, just performed, sang in order to make money. And the street performing culture in New York City is so interesting because much like anywhere, people are walking by and they don't want to see or hear or care what you're doing. Right. That was the most difficult time we ever had performing. Because now when we do shows, you know, we're playing in front of thousands of people that intentionally bought a ticket to come see us. And I would say we learned how to perform on the street better than anywhere else. Because if you can convince some guy who's on his way to work and doesn't want to stop and doesn't have the time to stop to right. actually stop and take money out of his wallet and give it to you, then you've done your job and you're ready for, you know, whatever stage. So that was a really important, you know, stage for us, even though we didn't have any, any mainstream success at all. Um, and then when Ryan and I were in school at Columbia together, um, some crazy things happened. We wrote a bunch of songs and we put them up online. Nothing happened at all with any of them. And then I was in my last semester, Ryan and I were taking a psychology class together. I was focusing and Ryan was tweeting and he was sending tweets to every celebrity he could think of, you know, at Justin Bieber and the link to one of our songs. And that song was, I'm ready. Um, at Miley Cyrus at, you know, whatever. The last one he did was Sia and Sia actually saw the video responded, Amazing. DM'd us, invited us to her hotel the next day downtown. She just happened to be in New York. We had brunch with Sia and she talked to us for a long time about songwriting, about performing, about what it takes to be in the music industry. And she and her manager introduced us to three different labels, for lack of a better word, in the, in the industry. We met with them, two out of the three of them, and I'm not going to mention any names because they're pretty recognizable names in the music industry said you, this, this is, you guys are good, but this is not right. We're going to put you in the room with, you know, a bunch of writers and a bunch of writers who have since been blackballed and, you know, people don't want to work with anymore. Yeah. Um, but 
we met with a third person who she recommended and that person said, ah, oh, you don't need a label. This sounds unique. This sounds fun. This sounds creative and it sounds different from what's on the radio. And that's why it's going to stand out. And that guy's name was Steve Greenberg. And even though he did have a label, he said, I want to be in business with you, not through my label. I want to start a company with you and we can do this differently. And this was before Chance the Rapper was doing it this way. And this was before any of these independent artists had their own labels. We created a company called AJR Productions that was co-owned by us and our manager. And we built it from scratch. We licensed the music to different distributors. But the whole point of that is that at the end of the day, we own our music. And you know, there have been hundreds and hundreds of cases recently, most famously Taylor Swift, where she wasn't able to hold down onto the rights to her music. And the goal of this company was that we have final creative control over everything. And we, at the end of the day, when our license agreements, everything are done, we literally own it. And it's been an amazing journey. And we've partnered with you know, so many different distributors and labels all over the world. At one point, we were partnering with Warner for radio and distribution. And then we partnered with Sony. And now we're using an independent distributor. And then overseas, it's something completely different. And in Australia, it's completely different. Canada, it's completely different. Every deal is completely different. But that's something that I think makes us unique um, because we want to work with people that have the energy and excitement for what we're doing. Have you ever regretted the decision? Because because I'm yeah. on your side when it comes <laughs> to like, if you can, I have turned down really good partnership deals yeah. to hold on to everything. Let's give a damn at this point. And we're not a big thing yet. It's growing and we're, you know, we're, we're yeah. branching out into TV and book and all that stuff. But, but I think that what I have is special and, and we've been able to do some really cool stuff with the brand and the idea already, right? So I'm totally on your side. But then there's also like, I hope my book agent doesn't hear this. Like one of the pushbacks that I've had for trying to get a book deal with a big publisher is just that. It's like, man, yes, they provide support. That's what they're there for. These labels, yep. these publishers, they've already set up a mechanism for marketing, for communications, for all that stuff, right? All these deals that you guys have to make, they make on your behalf. Yeah. But you lose so much in the process. And that is my, that I think that'll be the biggest battle I have in the coming years as this thing unfolds and develops is like, who do I partner with? Who do I trust? Because everybody is out at the end of the day to like further their own agenda and to like make sure they're taken care of, right? Yeah. So have you ever regretted that? Uh, you know, not not going main, you know, not going with, uh, you know, a big, a big uh, publisher or a big whatever and doing your own thing? Or have you guys just been like, okay, it's been hard fucking work, but we did it. Um, we've regretted it a couple of times, but after after that regret, every single time we came back and said, yeah. wow, if we had gone with a major, we would not be as successful as we are today. Because even just thinking about radio, radio takes a really long time to push a song. Our current song, Bang, has been on the radio for one year. If we were with a major label, they would have given up after three months. Sure. We had this scrappy independent team that did an amazing job. And every single day, I think I can, I think I can, kept pushing it up the mountain until we were number one on iTunes and top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. And that would not have happened. The song would have died back in, I don't know, June, if, if we had not had this independent creative team. But yes, then there were times like after our song, I'm Ready, which ended up going platinum. Um, we were completely independent after that, didn't have any distribution. And 
we didn't know what to do. We were like, okay, we're just going to keep putting out songs and maybe something will connect. And one of the things that came at that point, we were like very depressed, didn't know what to do. Um, And then our song, we wrote our song week, which ended up being an enormous song for us. But during that time, looking back on that time, it was extremely valuable because we wrote a song called let the games begin and let the games begin is out on Spotify released completely 100% independently, no distributor, nothing. We just put it up directly. And because all of the revenue comes directly to us from that song, that's allowed us to pay for a bunch of things over the last bunch of years. And if we had not had that time, we might not have been able to afford to do a few things over the last couple of years. So that really low time of let's just throw it up and see what happens, even though nothing happened in the moment, it ended up paying off over time. Yeah, that makes total sense. I love that. I love the scrappiness. I I, I share that with you and I never want to lose that. I hope you all don't either. Yeah. Um, let's go back a few minutes. You talked about, um, you know, before the band actually like formed, right? You're street performing, your little brother's doing some Michael Jackson stuff. And then you're in college and you're studying your brother's, you know, DMing people, you know, tweeting at people. Where did that come from? Because again, that is not, um, that's not normal. To, to that that doesn't happen naturally and I, and I i want to press in i hope one of the reasons that that happened is because of a your parents i want to talk about your parents and their support for what you all are doing but also there's something special about it's one of the biggest reasons one of the top three reasons i want to move to new york and never leave not because i love the united states i don't feel i don't feel at home here in the u.s i, I always want to leave the only place i want to live here is is new york city because i think new york city kids people that are raised in new york city and our kids won't be born there, obviously, but they're young enough. They can still become New York City kids. New York City kids have something special. Um, and so talk about your parents. I mean, yeah, you guys were performing in parks. They let you do that? How did that happen? Did, 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 were they there watching over you? Or was it more like, hey, go out there and do your thing? Like, where did that tenacity, that persistence, where did that come from for you in particular, but also just your 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 brothers? Yeah, it's a great question. New York City is a weird and amazing place to grow up. And I 100% want to raise my own kids in New York City. Um, Taking the subway alone for the first time when I was nine years old, like where else in the world would anyone allow a kid at nine years old to take the subway alone for the first time? And there's this, you know, tradition in New York City where the, the kids take their subway ride alone for the first time and the parents follow them and are in the car behind them to make sure everything's okay. And it's just, it's something that happens and you're forced to grow up really quickly because you can go down to your local grocery store and get milk without your parents because it is literally five steps from your apartment. Um, but, you know, the tenacity of living in New York City, it, I think it has to do with the energy that exists in this place. And people who are not from here and who have not spent considerable amount of time here don't really understand what that energy is because they see it as a, oh, everyone's so negative because everyone just wants to do their own thing and push their own projects and like just get ahead and screw everyone else. And that's not what it is. Right. It's an excitement and an eagerness for life and experiences just as much as yes, there is this whole corporate side of New York City, but there is also this whole cultural side of New York City. There's this whole music and dance side of New York City. There's this whole ethnic diversity side of New York City. And all of that contributes to 
appreciating and seeing that there's so many different types of energy that different people bring. I live right near Washington Square Park, and I don't know if you've ever been to Washington Square Park. Many times. Yeah. It is the most amazing place for me in the world because I will get there on a Sunday morning and I will bring a book and I will just sit there for hours reading because over the course of the day, there are you know business people that walk through, there are young kids playing, there are people with their dogs, but then there are insane, crazy people. There are homeless people that are trying to sell you weed. And they're the same people are trying to sell you weed like 20 times in the same hour. 100%. There are people who are part of cults that come to the park and lay down a sheet. And over the course of the day, 30 more people show up that they planned to be there during that day. There are people selling stuff and basically creating their own thrift stores. There are skateboarders. There's a piano that's in, in uh, Washington Square Park just about yep. every day. And a guy just comes and plays piano. They're chess players. It's it's uh, the Elton John song, uh, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's. I don't know if you know that song, yep. but it's about New York waking up. That park is the epitome of what New York is. That the person who is trying to sell you weed 20 times an hour can walk within two feet of the person who is on their way to you know their big job at Goldman Sachs and making $10 million a year. And they can have just as much respect for each other and what each other are doing. I don't think there's anywhere else in the world where that exists. And that mutual understanding that you are in a place that's unlike anywhere else fuels this inspiration, this creativity, and this excitement. And that's that place is the, the microcosm of why I never want to leave the city. Have you seen this new show, uh, Pretend It's a City, on Netflix? I am on episode five. <laughs> My goodness. I mean, Marty Scorsese is amazing. Fran yeah. Leibwitz, I, I, she'll never be my best friend because she's Fran Leibwitz. But I would love, I would, give, I would give my right arm to be friends with Fran Leibwitz. And the way that she talks about New York, the way that she, you know, when she's asked, like, why haven't you ever left? And she's like, no, no other place would want me. Like, New York's yeah. it. Like there is no other place besides New York. Like that yeah. feeling doesn't exist in, you know, I have total respect for people loving all kinds of experiences growing up. And like, you want to live in the burbs? I don't care. You want to live in the city? I don't care. You want to live in a high rise or underground? I don't give a fuck. But like, there is one place that has consistently, the North, Cedar Rapids, Iowa has not had a million songs written about it <laughs> that talk about uh, how insane of a place it is, how wonderful, like New York, New York, that doesn't exist for, you know, uh, uh, Paducah, Kentucky, or yeah. like it doesn't, and, and even there's a lot of great songs about LA and I love LA, but it's different. Like it's different when they're writing songs about LA, it's not the same kind of, it's not the feeling, it's not the spirit that you get when someone writes a song about New York, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there have been a million articles written about this, like what makes a New Yorker and I might get hate for this, but for me, it's somebody who was actually born in New York. And it's very hard to understand what it is to be a New Yorker unless you had like that subway experience that I just explained to you. And at five years old, going downstairs to get milk for your family alone when there you know, could be crazy people on the street. And Los Angeles is very different because it is a transplant city. Yep. There are very few people who are living in Los Angeles who are actually born in Los Angeles. And that's fine. And you can call yourself a whatever it is. Los, Los Angelino. Angelino. Yeah. 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 Um, 
But in New York, I mean, it's funny. There have been so many articles about this. Oh, I moved there when I was 15. I'm a New Yorker. I moved there, you know, when I was 40, I'm a New Yorker. I moved there four years ago. I'm a New Yorker. It's like, okay, come on. <laughs> yeah, there's a difference between li living in New York and being a New Yorker, right? And yeah, a lot, you know, you, you reference these articles, right? A lot of my friends say seven years, 10 years. You know, one of the hopes is, you know, taking our kids there when they're six, seven, and eight. Well, again, not born there, but if they can have that first subway experience, if they can have that first getting, you know, harassed by a homeless person like that, what, cause they're still, they're still in that age, you know, 15, you're well past your mind forming your ideas, forming at six, yeah. seven and eight, you still, you weren't born there, but you still, you still have time to really just take all this in like a sponge, you know, me moving there in my thirties with three kids and a wife, like I will live in New York but I won't, I know that about me. And I was born in Rochester, New York. So I can say I'm a New Yorker in a different way, Yeah. but, but it's not like New Yorker. Right. And I understand that because it is, it is a unique experience that, that very few people on planet earth get to have. And we integrate that into so much of what we do from an artistic perspective, because New York gave us so much inspiration. I mean, one of our one of our favorite bands is Simon and Garfunkel, and they mm. wrote so much about New York. Um, our song "Bang" actually features the voice of the New York City subway. We became friends with the guy yes. who says, "Stand clear of the closing doors, please." On our song "Bang," is the guy who says, "Here we go," and metronome, like the voice that makes its way throughout that song. And we just want to continue to pay homage to and support this place that has inspired us so much. And um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but every single song that we've ever put out has been written and produced in our living room in New York City, not in a big studio, not you know, in producers and writers, literally in the living room where we needed to pause because, you know, the neighbors were walking by where somebody was having a fight outside. And it just, that's what it is. And that's what makes our songs the way they are. And, and we're just going to keep doing it that way. That's the most New York thing ever. I love that. Okay, I promise we're getting we're going to get to planet uh we're going to get to your podcast, we're going to get to sustainable partners, we're going to get to your PhD here in a minute. One more thing though on the music cuz I'm interested cuz you you mentioned at the beginning that your first sort of interaction with, you know, the uh Joe Biden was about your song It's on Us for the project. How cuz some of your song, I mean, here's what I love about y'all's music. Um I am I am very strictly a, so probably 90% of my music consumption is classical music and Broadway tunes. Always been that way. Like growing up, I loved classical music. I love like, give me a, give me an opera and I'm good for two hours. Give me, I'll listen to, I listen to at least once. I shouldn't say once a day, but almost once a day, I listen to a musical all the way through, right? Like I love that experience of getting the whole story. Right. But I reserve 10% for other kinds of music, whether mostly it's friends of mine that make music because I want to support them. But also I find music every once in a while that hits me in a certain way. Like it, it just, it just hits that whether they're, cause y'all's music is very, um, a lot of anthems, a lot of things that you could scream from a mountaintop, like get on the rooftop and just scream. Yeah. And I love that. I love how, um, anthem ish it is. I love the, the ideas in the songs. And so with what is the, how do you guys write your music? Uh, is it intent? Do you intentionally 
take time away from the sort of, you know, brother anthem, you know, 100 bad days sort of stuff to write songs like it's on us. Or is that an intentional part of what you do? Cause I know, again, you guys all clearly give a damn. You're thinking about what's happening in the world. You're trying to respond to it. How does that fit into your, your songwriting? Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny that you mentioned classical and Broadway because those are two of the, um, inspirations and boundaries for our music. I mean, we have a song called The Good Part that uses um, Air on a G-String, a classical song. Yes. And we take a lot of inspiration from Broadway. We love Broadway, listen to it all the time, grew up with it, inspired a lot of our melodies, our harmonies, the you know lyric writing process. Um, so yeah, we kind of sit somewhere in the middle there, but there are also you know other dimensions to it. Um, I would say the songwriting process is not something that I am 100% directly involved in. So we, as a band, have functioned because of division of labor. Sure. And so many bands fail because this doesn't work. Um, because everyone in the band wants to do everything. Everyone wants to be the front man. Everyone wants to do the writing. Everyone wants to do the producing. Ryan and Jack together focus on the songwriting. And I, of course, like listen to everything and give feedback and like make changes and things like that. But the the reason why it works is because I focus on a lot of how do we make this band as big as possible and a success from the touring side of things to all of the legal deals, to the budgets, to the marketing, to all of that stuff that takes that beautiful, creative product that they make and make it into something that actually people can see in context and want to enjoy and go to the live stream show that we had in December and come see us in, you know, wherever, in Nashville and in LA and all these places. So songwriting is an interesting thing for me because I was a little more involved in it earlier, but we just found this perfect balance Mm. for the three of us. Um, But just, you know, speaking on behalf of them, songwriting is inspired by the simplest and easiest things around you. Ryan and Jack went back to school. I've stayed in school for the last, I don't know, 15,000 decades. Yeah. Uh, But they went back to school after we did um, our album called The Click because, yes, they wanted to learn and be inspired, but also they wanted to be around people their own age to observe them to figure out, okay, what's going on in their minds, in their worlds, in their lives, and what can we pull out from these experiences to write songs that are about our own lives, but also relatable. And that's the key part of what I think makes AJR songs unique, that they're a balance between incredibly specific, and even though the songs might be really specific, they're really generalizable and people can relate to them in many different ways. I love that. That's a great answer. Okay. So let's spend the last section on really one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on. I wanted to have you on for all that stuff, the AJR, New York City, all that stuff. It's been wonderful, but I do want to touch on, so there's a big part of your life that's about sustainability. That's a a theme that runs through your life. Um, And so let's spend a minute on, there's a lot to talk about here, but let's spend a minute on, um, before we move on to your other work and your PhD stuff, and I also want to talk about, actually, let's go here first. So AJR, you're on tour before the pandemic starts. 
and um, you guys have been making music for years, and you guys have really tried to focus on making even your. So this is this is what I love about learning more about you is it's an all encompassing thing. It's not just so many times it can be a front, it can be a shtick, it can be a thing that affects part of our lives, but not all of our lives, right? And it seems like not that I'm not not that you're doing it perfectly. None of us can and will, but you know, even your tour you guys made like sustainable, which is something that I think needs to happen more in the music world. I I did a, a bunch of music stuff in my the, the first part of my career and I was the man I managed a big hip hop tour. And this was this was 2000 the last big tour I was on was 2012, so 8 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was not I, when I was reading that about you I was like holy hell like this is our tour was not <laughs> sustainable. <laughs> like when you think about it it can be such a wasteful thing, right? It's so much waste because you're just moving so quickly and you're moving on and you got places to go and you got things to do. And so it's just waste everywhere. Right. So talk about before we jump into the podcast and your organization and and stuff like that, talk about how you all made, because I think this will be helpful. It's helpful when people are thinking about how can I become this in my own, what's when my own experience of this, hearing things like this is important. How did you all on tour, right? Thousands of people moving all over the place. How did you all make your tour? a more sustainable environment? It was very difficult. Sure. (laughs) A tour is not something that's, you know, you can snap your fingers and say, now it's sustainable. Um, I guess you could and pay for carbon offsets. And, you know, for people who are listening, carbon offsets are essentially paying for doing actions that pull carbon out of the atmosphere that would pull the same amount of carbon out out of the atmosphere that you're putting into the atmosphere. And yeah, you can pay to plant a whole bunch of trees. You can plant to what's called sequester carbon from the atmosphere and pull it down into the ground, but you're still putting the carbon up into the atmosphere. It's not enough. And a lot of businesses are doing that saying, oh, we're carbon neutral now. And all they're doing is just paying for a bunch of offsets. It needs to be real systemic change that we need. But on tour, um, there's a lot of things we can do. And I would say, I'm the first to say that there are other artists that are doing it better than we are. Mm. There are definitely other artists that are doing it better than we are. We, on our next tour, we're going to start using um, biodiesel, which is a different kind of fuel that is better for the environment. Um, We stay away from single-use plastics. And when we do have single-use plastics, we use um, bioplastic, which breaks down much more easily. When we work with promoters, um, we have a carbon fee built into our um, our deals. So when we fly, we do offset all of the carbon for all of our crew members that have to and ourselves that have to fly in for projects. Um, and there are a bunch of other things we do. I mean, we have a, a few merchandise items that when you purchase them, we plant some trees um, and a range of other things. But the big there there are a few big things uh, in the touring world that need work. One is creating incentives for people. And this is something that I learned in the music industry that I brought over to the sustainability space. And we can talk about this, you know, when I talk about the the sustainable partners and and the nonprofit, but creating incentives for people to build excitement is so important. One of the biggest things in touring that contributes to climate change is people traveling to and from the concert. If, you know, we played Red Rocks in Denver, which was a dream venue for us. Sure. I mean, there are about 10,000 people in that audience. Think of the number of cars that are going to and from the venue just to see that one show. It's tremendous. So if you can incentivize 
carpooling programs and electric vehicles and all of these other things. That's how we're going to start to make a difference in the touring industry. And it's going to create, it's going to need partnerships. There's an amazing organization called Reverb um, that does great work and partners with artists like us and also artists like Billie Eilish and Sean Mendez. Um, the Lumineers just did the first tour ever that was completely carbon neutral and not wow. a single you know, pound of carbon was put into the atmosphere from the show. Yes, they did use offsets and they did, did use a bunch of other techniques, but even every single car from fans to and from the concert, every single bit of CO2 from that was offset. So we are making a lot of progress and AJR is going to make even more progress. But if I'm working on this stuff in school and with my nonprofit and with my, my UN work, I can't not live my life by it. It's something that I believe in. So I have to live the rest of my life by it. I can't piecemeal. It's, it's not who I am as a person. I hope that people take really seriously what you just said. You, you describe your experience, but everybody has their version of that, right? Like I bank with aspiration, um, out of LA who, you know, uh, the, we, we plant trees. They round up every, every time I swipe the card, trees get planted. They, you know, offset, I use it for my gas on my hybrid. And so it gets off, you know, offset all of that stuff, but it's still, so if you do all of that, right. Yeah. But then you don't do the other side, right. So then if I come home and I'm using, you know, paper towels for everything and I'm, you know, leaving the lights on for hours on end and I'm doing all these other things that are not in a, the bulbs I have use are horrible. And we're, you know, uh, all, all of these other things, right. We can name, we can name things all day. It's. What I love to do, because we're we're a sustainable family as much as we can, we're and we're learning different ways to get better. We're very environmentally friendly as a family. We're vegan. We're doing all these things that reduce our imprint on the planet, our negative imprint on the planet. But it has to be that people look at us like we're crazy sometimes. Like, how do you get your kids to be vegan? Well, first of all, kids are super smart. They get these ideas. You talk to them about it. They get it. They're 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 ninety eight percent of the time they're super happy with it. And, but it has to be, we're not crazy. We're just trying to live consistently so that if I do bank with aspiration because of these reasons and I do buy and I don't buy from Amazon prime because of all the Amazon shit and I do all these things, right? Like that just means that I'm trying to live more consistently. And so I love that example of you, first of all, saying we're not doing it the best and we're trying to do it better, but also like just introducing like, Hey, even when we have to, even when we have to break the rules a little bit, we have to use single use plastics here and there. We're even using the best version of that because it, it is about, consistency, right? And that's how we all become uh, more sustainable uh, uh, humans on this planet is by just little by little, you know, inch by inch, day by day saying, okay, what else can I do? Are there other ways that I can reshape, reorient my life to be better, to be a better human on the planet? And this is a very difficult problem because in the sustainability space, first of all, a lot of people don't realize that sustainability is about so much more than climate you know, looking at problems of poverty, health, even the COVID-19 pandemic, yep. gender equality, inequality, all of these things are related to sustainability. Sustainability is understanding that the way we live and the resources on our planet should be the same, if not more, than how we left it, you know, than, 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 than when we got here, I'm sorry, um, that we're leaving for our children. And, you know, everything is interconnected and interrelated. And uh, I guess back in September, we had Andrew Yang on our podcast, and he is an amazing guy. 
and we talked a lot about his core principle. I mean, if you know anything about Andrew Yang, you know that he talks about universal basic income. That is every his, day, every his day. Thing. Yep, yep. So we talked about universal basic income, and there are so many people in the world that, not like you and not like me, who can actually take the time to think about, okay, I'm going to make this choice to buy an LED bulb over this compact fluorescent bulb because it's more sustainable. These people have, you know, this is a single mom living in XYZ state who has three kids living on food stamps, barely making ends meet. She doesn't have the time and energy and mental capacity at that because she needs to focus on all of these things um, to think about, okay, how can I make my life more sustainable? So something like universal basic income is an amazing solution because it gives people the opportunity to think about the things that can, you know, be more sustainable, whether it's lifting themselves and other people out of poverty, making the more sustainable individual choices. There are so many things we can do, but only if we understand that sustainability is integrated with inequality and health and poverty. And the big one for me is education. If we can revamp, especially in this country, the education system, we are going to have a much bigger focus on science and facts and people understanding this is truth, this is not truth, and we can we can move forward properly. Yeah, great observation to point out that sustainability is about much more than just the environment because that is so true. And again, being I think every human should be giving a damn. That's why I started this thing. And everybody can't, everybody can't do everything. We can't care about everything. We can't give a shit about everything, but we can figure out the thing. There are always ways that we can move the needle, right? And I love that you brought up Andrew Yang too. I, um, I've been, we've been talking for, since he was running as president to get on my podcast back and forth, schedule's been busy, but I did have, uh, so it'll happen eventually, but I had Annie Lowry. I don't know, have you ever read Annie's book, Give People no. Money? I haven't, but I I know Annie Larry has worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just incredible. I had her on a couple of weeks ago to talk about UBI. She obviously talks about it really beautifully. And, you know, she's she's done a lot of work on it and stuff. I love the idea of UBI because you're right. You can't you can't expect anybody living at, you know, that's making less than $15 an hour, which is tens of millions of people. Yeah. Um, to make these decisions, right? A UBI is so important for the future of our planet in a hundred different ways. So when did you start uh, Sustainable Partners? Uh, when did you start it? Why did you start it? I think we've already got a peek into why you started it, but like, and what, and what does Sustainable Partners do? Yeah. So Sustainable Partners is the way for me to formalize all of the sustainability work that I'm doing. Um, started about two years ago now, and it came out of a partnership with the United Nations. Um, a couple of years ago, once I was work, I was working on my PhD at the point at that point, and AJR was really starting to grow. And the United Nations said, "You know, we really like what you're doing. Will you come on board as an advocate and help us to spread the word about our sustainability initiatives?" And for the UN, that's the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, yep. and. They are 17 goals that are meant to help protect people and planet. And they're very concrete. You know, there are specific targets and indicators that every country is supposed to be hitting. And, you know, we need this many people to have primary education by this year. And it's very concrete, a set of goals that they want to achieve by 2030. And so they had me to help, you know, amplify their messaging, help to translate it in a way that it makes sense for millennials and Gen Zs, because, you know, the UN is great at what they do in terms of bringing people together, but maybe not the best at communicating their, you know, efforts to a wider range of audiences. And they have people out there who are 
amazing at that, but it takes a lot to take that those complex reports that they have and make them accessible. So that's kind of the first step in this. And so I did a bunch of different projects with them. We did a, a series where I partnered iHeartRadio with the UN and we did a PSA series about sustainability, ended up reaching, I don't know, like 90 million people. Wow. Um, and it was great. And from that and a few other projects, they said, okay, let's formalize this relationship. So I started Sustainable Partners and we have three kind of focuses. And the, the focuses are first, this program called Time for Change. And essentially the program is when you're watching a video on YouTube or Instagram, there's going to be an ad that comes up and everybody either swipes away from the ad or skips the ad. We work with brands now and we're working with a bunch of different major brands to incentivize people to watch the ad all the way through in exchange for a positive action. And this might seem so simple, but if you watch an ad for, let's say, Verizon, you're going to probably skip it after five seconds. But if you watch it all the way through, you would watch it all the way through and a girl in Haiti would receive a notebook and pencils mm. just from you taking that 20 seconds to watch the ad all the way through. And this works for everybody because people feel like they're doing something good by just spending 20 seconds of their time. The brands love it because people are actually watching their ads and obviously the charities love it, but it also engages people with brands in a different way. We did one, we did our campaign with Ticketmaster last year. And in three weeks, we planted a hundred thousand trees from just people spending 20 seconds at a time watching these advertisements. Um, and it worked beautifully. And now we've pulled plastic out of the ocean. We've alleviated medical debt. We've supplied meals to kids in need, you know, uh, school supplies to young girls in Haiti. Every brand that we work with has a different CSR, corporate social responsibility priority. And so we work with a bunch of different charities to help funnel this, these tiny actions that might seem in, when you're in your home, just watching that video, it might not seem like anything, but think about these ad budgets that these companies have, you know, Verizon, just as an example, spending millions and millions and yeah. millions of dollars in ads. You think about the number of people that are watching those ads, that adds up to huge action. So that's one thing that we do. And then we have a fellowship program, which I'm really excited about because it's all about translating complex academic ideas into something accessible. So we have researchers come in, but at the same time, we have people who do graphic design and video and communications. Last year, we had a fellowship group write a whole research paper on urban agriculture and rooftop farming. Hmm. And yes, they wrote a 60 page paper, but at the same time, they built a giant Lego structure with many different rooftops to convey all the different types of rooftop farming and how to build a coalition to make a more sustainable rooftop agricultural practice. So it's how do we communicate these ideas in creative and different ways? And the last thing that we, we do is this podcast called Planet Reimagined. It's incentive-based, like I was mentioning before, for every person that subscribes, we plant a tree. And it's all about this, again, the same thing that I was talking about before, that sustainability is more than just about the environment. Like I said, Andrew Yang was our guest, but we also had an episode about food and entomophagy. Entomophagy is all about eating insects and what that can do for the world. Um, we had an episode with the chief environmental officer of Microsoft, and he talked all about artificial intelligence and the amazing things that artificial intelligence can do for sustainability. We've talked about building design, and we've talked with this amazing young man in Kenya who invented a toilet that is completely sustainable, and it's just 
in, in for me at least. I mean, I hope people find it inspiring. Yeah. But for me, it's been really inspiring meeting and talking with all of these people who are brilliant and creative in ways that I know nothing about. Even though I le- live and breathe in this world of sustainability all the time, there's so many things that are happening to make the world a more sustainable place that I wanted to share that with the world. So that's our kind of public facing. How do we help educate the world about all these amazing sustainable initiatives that are going on? And that's Planet Reimagined. How how did the, I mean, all of that's fascinating. I love the multi-pronged approach. Uh, I'm I'm working on a version of that with Let's Give a Damn, right? Started as a podcast. And once pe- once I found out that people really wanted to hear you know, more stories and figured out, it was like, okay, let's write a book. Let's do a t- Let's try to do a docu-series. Let's yeah. uh, start the nonprofit arm. I, I ended up having to partner with a bunch of nonprofits to like, you know, to do these projects. I'm like, why don't we start our own? Like we can do this, right? There's things that we can do if we're controlling all of the narrative and all the story, right? So I love the multi-pronged approach. The podcast, how's, how that, how's that experience been? Obviously I'm, I love podcasts. I'm a big consumer yeah. of podcasts. I also do it every week for the last few years. Um, how's that experience been and what's sort of the, what's been the feedback from the stories that you've been telling? Cause they sound amazing. I, again, I didn't know about it until recently, you know, getting ready for our conversation, but I'm going to listen. Cause again, those are conversations that I want to hear to pass things off to my kids, talk about different things with my kids and further orient ourselves as a, you know, a sustainable family. It kind of to tie it back to the beginning of our discussion, the podcast never would have happened had not the pandemic happened. Sure. Um, and I was thinking about, oh, what if it was a TV show? What if it was a book? What if it was all these different things? But what what I needed at that time and what I feel like the guests of my podcast needed that time was that personal connection and conversation. So it served two purposes. Actually, it served more than two purposes. Yes, it plants trees and that's fantastic. That is you know, a great thing for the world. It's also a great educational tool, but it also serves as a way for people to connect during this time over the things that they're excited about. And this is something that I talk a lot about. The world of climate change has been built on fear of the future. And fear of the future is a very real thing. Um, Greta is an amazing activist and advocate. Al Gore has been incredible for this movement. John Kerry, AAOC with her Green New Deal. Everything has been built on fear. And at the moment, fear is not enough. Fear is not enough to get businesses to make change, to get governments to make enough change, to get individuals to make enough change. The only place that's really making enough change is civil society, which is like charities and foundations and things like that. So my whole ethos is let's try and rebrand the climate movement and focus on excitement. Mm. And how do we get people and businesses and governments excited about the climate movement and excited about sustainability? And I'm starting to do that. And with the podcast, I'm doing that. I'm looking at the music industry because the music industry has created this model that, that is an expert at building excitement around something. You, this, this creation of a fandom is amazing. It's building a community. Creation of incentives, like we talked about before, happens all the time in the music industry. 
And I take everything I learned there. And I also do a lot of research into sports. Sports is another great industry that does this. Food does this really well. Fashion does this really well. Places where you can get people excited in a way that you can about anything else. How do we take their techniques and apply them to the climate movement? So that's something that I'm working on now. I'm working on a bunch of longer form pieces that are going to come out in April around Earth Month. I have a, um, a project that's coming out then that's a video project. But everything that I'm doing around sustainable partners, around AJR, around my individual work, like I talk, you know, at these crazy conferences and whatever, where everyone wants to hear about sustainability. Again, it's preaching to the choir. I try and give a new perspective on it that we need to get people excited about it because maybe at some point in the future, fear will work as a tactic to get people involved. And maybe in Australia, it's gotten people to work with the fires. And maybe people in California, fear is enough. And maybe people in New Orleans, fear is enough. And in Southeast Asia, with these small islands that are now you know, pretty much underwater, it is enough. But in a lot of Europe and a lot of South America and definitely in the United States, fear is not enough. So we need a different tactic to get people in, involved. And for me, that is excitement. How can we use excitement to rebuild and rebrand this climate movement? Dude, I fucking love that because like fear only goes so far, no matter who you're talking about or what you're talking, even if there's a fire out your front door, like, and you know, you talk about the wild wildfires, like fear only goes so far. There has to be at some point in the interaction, at some point, there has to be hope. There has to be excitement for like, okay, let's just not give up. We actually can do something. We actually can move forward. That's, and I love that you brought up the music thing. Music, even over, you know, people are going bonkers right now over Amanda Gorman, the poet laureate at the, right? Like there's something about art. There's something about music. There's something about poetry that hits differently than anything else. Like uh, uh, there's also another viral thing right now with uh, Macklemore. He released this like two minute uh, rap about Trump being gone and how, you know, how like, let's do stuff. Let's do something now that he's gone we can make it, we can make a change. And it was like, it wasn't totally like what we're talking about, but it was, I mean, it's going bonkers viral right now because he was able to put to music, uh, this idea of Trump being gone and, you know, Biden's like kind of vanilla and he's an old guy, but like, let's, let's, let's all work together to make something move forward. Right. Yep. And so there's something special about, uh, music and art. And I love that that's being included somewhat in, in, you know, AJR as, as music and that you're trying to figure out and I think even podcasting, like I, this has been the greatest tool. Like I, I'm not a top hundred podcast. I'm not any of that, but Me this has this <laughs> opened so many doors. Like this podcast is the best business card I could have ever created. Me just yeah. talking with people, putting stories out in the world. It's opened so many doors. And now I'm even as this like guy with a small platform, like I've been able to connect with, you know, some of the biggest names in the world to tell their story. Like you know, if, if, if I did, I've interviewed Matthew McConaughey in, in late autumn. And then from that, like Priyanka Chopra, Jonas came to me and said like, hey, can I be on your show for my memoir coming out? Like, they're just amazing. We, we just got to keep pushing. We got to keep pushing stuff out into the world. I love, I love so much about this. Uh, let's wrap up because I, I, I want to respect your time. There's so much to talk about. I'm going to link to, you know, Sustainable Partners, your podcast. I want everybody to listen to it. Wrap up and talk about your PhD work. Um, and, and, and how, how that's going to play into all this, because again, everybody's contribution is important. We need everybody involved, but there is something about really getting to know a, a subject matter 
you know, yeah. at that level, because now you get to speak, you've, you've spent so much time in, in this topic, in this subject, you're able to speak to it in ways that other people cannot and should not. We have so many people <laughs> speaking on things they should not, uh, because they don't, they haven't studied it super well. Like I'm working with this physicist here on this COVID zero project. Like I have always been about COVID zero. We've taken this pandemic very seriously, but nobody takes what I have to say very seriously because I'm Nick in Nashville that just cares about the pandemic leaving, but I don't have any authority. Yanir comes in, 40-year veteran physicist, helped end the Ebola crisis because of his contribution six years ago. When he speaks about COVID-0, people are like, oh, shit, like we can actually do it because he has that authority. So what sort of, what's the impetus behind the PhD and what do you plan on doing with it? Yeah. Um, I've always loved being in school. I've always loved it. I did my undergrad at Columbia, I did my master's at NYU from the back of the tour bus. Literally, while we were on tour, it became a library and there were just books flying everywhere. And now I decided to do my PhD in the UK because I wanted a very different perspective. So I still, I go back and forth. I spend time there. Obviously, now I'm just spending time in the US and it's yeah. all virtual. But I wanted a very different perspective. And my PhD is on the intersection of human rights law and sustainable development. So that sounds crazy. But um, the simple elevator pitch is sustainability is a major movement in the world, as we've talked about. Solar farms, wind farms, hydroelectric plants, they're all great and bringing clean electricity to millions and millions and millions of people. But at the same time, they're still capitalist enterprises. And there are many cases where they contaminate water supplies, destroy the biodiversity, kill off animals, remove indigenous people from their lands that they own. And there are some cases where countries open fire on peaceful protesters that are protesting these, you know, sustainable projects. So my, my focus is saying right now, we need to make sure that we're binding human rights to a more sustainable future. We can definitely move in a more sustainable direction, but if we don't make sure that the human rights laws are being abided by at the same time, then we're going to move sustainably, mm -hmm. but it's not going to make any difference in terms of all of these other pieces of poverty and inequality and health, et cetera. Yes, we will be using clean electricity and these companies, like we've talked about, are going to make millions and millions and millions and billions of dollars, but we need to make sure the human side of it is being protected. So that's the, the simple version of what I'm working on. But what you said was really interesting because, yes, it's really important to have experts in these fields. But to be honest, the experts are useless without the people that can help to share and grow and learn from the work. Yep. I mean, Greta is not an expert in climate. She does not. I Did she finish high school? It doesn't matter. Maybe at this point. Right, right. But- Honestly, it doesn't matter because she knows her shit and she's done the work by listening to the scientists and the experts and sharing that message. And she is a conduit for it to help getting other to get other people involved. And that's what you are. And that's what I am to a certain extent, even though at some point within the next few months, I will be handing in my dissertation. Um, I will be at that level and I want to be able to be both the expert and the conduit for it. But there is no expert without people sharing the work of the expert and acting on the work of the expert. So it needs both 
party in order to succeed. Man, I love that. I, I really do. Um, I, I haven't told people that the only way you've been able to accomplish all this at this point in your life is because you're 46 years old. Um, <laughs> just kidding. You're like in your late 20s, right? I just turned 30. Just turned 30. My God. I mean, you've done so much. Um, I am, I know it's the first time we're talking, but I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud of you sort of taking what life, you like seeing what life brings at you and sort of, I mean, it seems from what everything I'm seeing, you're, you're, you're taking what life comes to you, at you and, and saying, okay, how can I maximize this? How can I use this to the best of my ability? Because there's a lot of 30-year-olds that may have even had some similar opportunities or like even the semblance of an opportunity come their way and they're busy with other shit. They're busy with other stuff and whatever. That's fine. We're not, I'm not talking about any particular, so I can shit on that idea. But like you saw these opportunities and you took them. And as a result, we've got AJR, you know, a, a, a music making machine, just beautiful stuff that you and your brothers are putting together. We've got the Planet Reimagined podcasts, Sustainable Partners, which I'm very excited about. We didn't even get to talk about. I mean, I we'll save it for another time. Maybe we'll do a part two in a year or so. But like that, I, I have a lot more that I want to like talk about with the time for change, the digital advertising. Pro I mean, there's just so much there that I think is so important. Like that could revolutionize um, an entire industry. It really could because you're so right. I mean, I just skip by ads, but everybody's also looking for simple ways to give a damn. Yep. And if I knew that if I watched that whole ad, something would happen, I'm watching every single ad for the rest of time, right? So it's so beautiful. And then your PhD work, which I'm so excited about. I, whenever your dissertation is done and it's good for, you know, other eyes, I would love to read it. I really would. Cause that's so, so fascinating to me. Um, so Absolutely. thank you so much for joining us today. This was really beautiful. Um, thanks for sharing your story, your work. Uh, I think the world of you and, um, yeah, excited to share this with the let's give a damn family. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. You are amazing. I love the work that you're doing and thank you for, uh, sharing people's stories. It's a really important thing. Dear friends, thank you so much for joining Adam and me today. Go listen to AJR on your favorite music platform. Make sure to stream and or purchase their brand new album, OK Orchestra, on March 26th. Follow Adam on social media at Adam AJR Brothers and check out the work he and his team are doing as sustainable partners. Just Google it. And please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about what we're up to at Let's Give a Damn. Thank you so much for showing up today. I'm so grateful. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.